0: welcome. Um, I'm saying welcome to myself because this is my first Sunday, I think, preaching uh, officially, and um, I'm just so privileged to be here. Wendy and I have felt so loved and cared for by um, IGC, and it's going to take me, I'll be calling you Indelible Grace Church, IGC. I sometimes mix up G's and J's. Anyway, so I'll probably get it wrong a few times. I wanted to ask you all to just tell me your name every time I see you, like Jeff, even though uh, I've known you since April, I need you to just say, Tom, it's Jeff, Yeah, you know, it's Jeff, just, or if you're wearing a mask, please, you know, just for one millisecond, I'd love to see your face for just a tiny bit, that would help me, because uh, I want to know all of you, I want to know your names, and uh, my name's Tom and so i 'll be doing that for you as well, because i don 't expect you to remember who I am either. Um, so uh, let 's see is there any other things? Yeah, thanks again for taking a risk and uh, I think it 's really wise to have someone kind of in this season um, an interim and transition i i 've pastored for years, but i 've never been an interim pastor before so um, there's going to be a learning curve for what that looks like and uh, how to love you well, and uh, you guys are good at loving. Oh, I wanted to mention that I did have LASIK. I'd I mentioned that, I think, in a congregational letter, that I had LASIK on Tuesday, and so um, I think it went okay. I don't have reading glasses on right now, and I can still see my notes. Uh, so it, it went well. Um, driving here last night, my wife can tell you, was a little dodgy and scary, but... Uh, and I also had my nose done. You know, that was a while ago also. Not, I didn't get a nose job. I was having my septum straightened. And so I think the next thing I'm going to do is get um, David Yee's arms. Uh, that's what I'm hoping the next thing will be. But, okay. Uh, oh, sorry. Just things I wanted to remind myself to tell you. So this past weekend was our grandson's third birthday. It was yesterday. So, um, and they live up in the paradise Area like you know, heard of Paradise, um, and I'm telling you this because I know some of you are wondering how a 35-year-old like myself could have a three-year-old grandson. It can happen. Um, so I'm really 55, but so today's text is in Revelation, and I think David said that I was preaching through the book of the Revelation today. I'm not. I'm only preaching a few verses, so relax. It won't be all, you know, all the chapters in Revelation. But if you would stand for the reading of God's word, we're in Revelation chapter one. I'm just going to be looking at starting at verse 12. We'll go to verse 18. I think that's right. Yeah. This is God's most holy word. Then I, and that's John, the apostle, turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Those are the churches at the time, the seven churches. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. We'll stop there for today. Would you bow in prayer with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in this room this morning, may they be pleasing, may they be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our great strength and our Redeemer, through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you all. So, I don't know what y'all think about the book of the Revelation, but as I, over the years, have thought about it, uh, and I think this is a right assessment, that there are churches, theologians, academics, who love the book of the Revelation. They're in it all the time. They're always talking about it. It's amazing to them. It's just full of all the secrets, and they love trying to decode everything, and they love it. Or... You have the other extreme where no one wants to talk about the book. It's like it's so full of secrets. We don't know what they are. No one knows exactly what it means. We're afraid of it. So you have these kind of extremes that I think happen often. Whereas it's an apocalyptic book. Apocalyptic just means unveiling. And so it's sort of the movie version of the gospel. It's kind of uh, the unveiling of Christ. And that's exactly what we just read. Sort of we get to see Christ not the way we saw him in the Gospels or the way we see him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We, we see him in this vision of John, the Apostle, in this kind of movie version, this sort of unveiled way. Uh, using symbols, you know, using these uh, images that maybe we're not completely used to. So, I mean, I would say we want to be, as a church in general, um, like with all books of Scripture Uh, We don't want to focus all on that one or none at all. We want to have a way of coming at it, trusting that the gospel is going to bear itself out to us as God's people. And so uh, we're going to just spend a little bit in these verses today because I love these verses. Um, This past week, I was sort of interviewing the person that will be replacing me at William Jessup University, where I've worked the last few years. Um, I get to hopefully uh, help him transition. He just got his Ph.D. and he was studying the church. And one of the things that we were talking about with his research the last few years is he was looking at the church and wondering why people end up at the churches they do. And he was he was looking at the question of how people go about church shopping in the American culture and the evangelical American culture. Really fascinating, right? I mean, I'm like, tell me tell me more about your research. And, uh, and of course, if you talk to somebody with a PhD, they love to talk about their research. So they're really happy. And so he was telling me, well, I learned that people will land in a church because of their individual cultural... Things that they come into a church and they're looking for those things, for the how how the church is kind of meeting their individual needs. And that's not a bad thing. That's the way our culture is kind of going. Uh, We're looking at kind of a consumer idea. And that sounds like it's a terrible thing, but I think it's just part of our culture. He said the other reason, so these individual kind of cultural things, people are looking for churches that meet those needs. But he said the other thing is people will, will land at a church by the way the church reaches out to its community. Like, that's the most important thing for some people. The community. Is, is there community within the church? And how are they looking out, you know, outward? And I thought, well, that, you know, that seems like, well, that, that's what happens. Um, like, I thought, did you have to do research for that? You know, that was not really a nice question. But because um, I felt like that seemed pretty obvious in the way our culture is. But together we were talking, and the thing that should be the most important thing in any Christian church is Christ. Like he, And of course, my friend, my new friend, who is going to be probably replacing me at William Jessup, we both came to, yes, Jesus is really the center. And for those who are church shopping, who are believers, yes, whether it's community or their individual needs, Jesus Christ has to be the centerpiece. He has to be that which is always um, who we're, we're around and feasting off of and learning about to take how, how we take him in and how we see him in our lives. So That's why this text is so important to me, because we see Jesus in these amazing ways. So I just want to spend, hopefully we can catch a glimpse of him here the way John did. And um, just quickly, John is the beloved disciple. He's the one that Jesus on the cross gave his mom to. You know, he's like, John, please take care of my mom. Um, John was the beloved disciple. And here he's in exile. So he's on this island of Patmos, which is rocky and desolate and awful. And if I were John, I would be thinking, hey, I'm the beloved disciple, (laughs) Jesus. So what am I doing in exile? Why am I in this terrible place? I don't know if you've felt the same way at times in your life. You're like, I'm the beloved. Why am I going through the things that I'm going through in my life? So John, I think, really needed to see Christ in some amazing, glorious way. And Jesus shows up for him and, and says, write all this stuff down that you're about to hear, that you're about to see. And so he does. So that's my lead. in. oh, one more, can I, one more thing I wanted to share. Just, um, we will get to I promise we'll get to the text. And you're like, are you going to preach all morning? Probably. So. Um, one of the reasons I started my PhD research, uh, seems like so many years ago was there was a guy named Samuel Rutherford. He lived in the 1600s, um, and he, he's Scottish or he was Scottish and he was buried in St. Andrews where my wife and I lived for five years in Scotland. And, um, he, The reason I was so enamored with Samuel Rutherford is he really seemed to be in love with Jesus. And uh, there's a little book called The Loveliness of Christ, uh, where a person put together some of his sayings and some of his writings. Um, and I just wanted to read a couple things to you out of what Samuel Rutherford, the way he saw Jesus in his own life. Um, the reason why, again, I love Samuel Rutherford is because I, I want to see the loveliness of Christ the way he did. And uh, actually, like I said, he was buried in St. Andrews. And in the first two weeks we lived in St. Andrews, I was hunting for his gravesite. It wasn't, I mean, I went through a cemetery looking for where he, it's it's a little, it's stalkerish. He probably himself was like, please back away. But Samuel Rutherford says, Oh, pity forever, evermore that there should be such a one as Christ Jesus, so boundless, so bottomless, so incomparable and infinite excellency and sweetness And so few to take him. Oh, you poor, dry, and dead souls. Why won't you come hither with your void vessels, your empty souls to this huge and fair and deep and sweet well of life and fill up your empty vessels? Oh, that Christ should be so large in sweetness and worth. And we so narrow, pinched, so ebb, and so void of all happiness, and yet we will not take him. They lose their love miserably, who will not bestow upon all their love to this lovely one, Jesus. Samuel Rutherford, there's so many things in this tiny book that he says that gives you the idea that Samuel Rutherford was in love with Jesus Christ as much as a person can be in this life. And I want that for my life, too. And so seeing him today, um, starting in verse 12, if you do have your Bibles, great. I didn't make any PowerPoint slides this week. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I didn't this week. So um, if you have your Bibles, verse 12 again says, John, turned to see the voice that was speaking to him. Um, That's an interesting verse already to me. Maybe this is what you came to hear today. Sometimes, well, at some time in everyone's life, we have to turn and see the voice that's speaking to us. It's, at some point, you will have to turn and see Christ, the voice, because he will one day come and everyone will see him. So whether it's now or later, we all have to turn and see the Christ who is the Lord. And here in John's vision... He's hearing this voice that's telling him to write everything down, and he finally turns. So, hey, I'm going to encourage all of us, including myself, turn to see Christ today. I don't know exactly what that looks like for you. Maybe it means coming back to church. Maybe it means uh, spending time in Scripture. Maybe it means talking to your wife again in a way that you need to talk. I don't know what turning and seeing Christ means in your life. But he's definitely calling in this one verse to you right now and to me right now to turn to see. He's speaking. If we would just hear his voice and by his spirit, I pray that we will. So that's just verse 12. Um, Verse 13, John turns to see the voice that's speaking to him. uh, And then in verse 13, he sees this one like a son of man. That's lost on me immediately. I, I hear son of man. I'm thinking, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus is human? Because we know he was fully God. He was fully man. Like two, 100% both, 200% savior, right? But actually, the son of man, seeing John seeing this one like the son of man, it's actually not saying that he's human at all. It's quite the opposite. And some of you are like, we, we know that's Tom. Well, sorry, I'm just... Reminding myself then that the Son of Man is that He is fully God. John is seeing this the one like the Son of Man, meaning like in Daniel, which is another apocalyptic book in the Scriptures, Revelation. Daniel, Daniel also has this vision. Um, He. He sees, Daniel says, and this is in chapter 7, verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given. So this son of man, to him was given dominion and glory, a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is what a son of man is in Scripture, One who has all dominion. One who is like the ancient of... Who is God. So John turns, sees one like a son of man. He sees God. With a long robe. Right? With a long robe. Also sort of lost on me. Um, The first thing I thought of when I saw long robe here in the text, at least this is me, is that Jesus was in his bathrobe having a binge time on Netflix. Like, you know, that's when I put my robe on is when I'm sitting around sick or on the couch and just doing nothing at all, right? Do do you guys have robes that you wear? I mean, besides bathroom, but a long robe on the son of man means nothing to me. However, in this context, a long robe in the first century, a long robe in the first century was worn by two categories of people. Again, you may know this already, so I'm just telling you the obvious, but... There were long robes worn in the first century by virgins or by really, really wealthy, powerful, prestigious, status-holding people. So by pure and powerful people, they had long robes on. They would wear long robes all the time. I don't know, maybe this is a stretch, but if you're familiar with Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal sons, Because it's not about the prodigal son. It's about both of those sons in that parable. But um, the father, and it's kind of a stretch because it doesn't necessarily say it. It doesn't say it in the text when Jesus is telling the parable. But that father in Luke 15, he had enough disposable cash that he was able to give one of his sons all of his share, which tells me that that man in the parable was a wealthy man, probably one who wore a long robe. And when he sees one of his sons coming from the the far country home, he runs to kiss and embrace that son, right, who had been squandering all of his inheritance, if you know the story that Jesus tells in Luke 15. And in my mind, this wealthy who had disposable cash enough to give half of it away to his son, he must have hiked up his robe, his long robe, to run down the road to kiss his son and welcome him back in. I'm just imagining that. And if maybe this is what you came to hear today. Jesus, even in Revelation 1, is willing to hike up his long robe to come and embrace all of his sons and daughters who would come to him. But Jesus is wearing this long robe, showing he is pure. He is powerful. He is, well, he's the king because he's wearing also, in verse 13, a golden sash, Right? And you're like, yeah, Tom, that that's a king. Um, and again, I just have to keep saying it. All of this imagery, seeing Jesus like this, it's sort of lost on us. We're we're not an American culture that understands a monarchy or kings and queens. However, the queen did just pass away in the UK um, and she was on the throne for a very long time. Um, and and I've had, since we lived in the UK for about five years, I've had people come up to me and ask me about her. You know, like I knew her or something. I mean, like, I, like what do you think about the Queen's passing? She was old. You know, I mean, it, it was... Uh, I would say maybe in our culture, a little bit, we we have some idea because a lot of people love Princess Diana, right? Uh, were y'all born yet when she... Y'all are so young. Um, but... So we have some idea with Princess Diana. Um, and she made for us in American culture was the closest thing that we would understand about a queen or because we mourned her. But then if you think about in the Old Testament, how many good kings were there for the people of God in the Old Testament? And it's rhetorical. I have to remind you. I mean, if you want to answer, you can. But good kings for even when the, the Israelites split into the northern and southern kingdoms, how many good kings did they have? I'm going to tell you zero. Like, they really didn't have any. Like, well, wait, Tom, wasn't there King David? You know, if we really want to go down the King David, his record of being a good king, so many things that would put him in the bad category. You're like, well, he was a, a man after God's own heart. In my opinion, as I read that, it means that God loved him supremely. That, I mean, God was, you know, really loved him. Uh, So, I would say there were no good kings in Israel, really. When it comes down to it, they were all faulty rulers. They all spent time looking only at themselves, living for themselves, not really caring about the people of God as much as they should. So, in Israel, to see Jesus as king, they would long for a good king. And again we don't want a king. We're Americans. We don't even, we don't even really want a president. We, we want to be totally autonomous, right? We're independent. And yet, as I read about Jesus being this king with this golden sash around his chest, uh, I think to myself, you know, my rule of myself lately is not going that great. I mean, I, I, I'm the ruler of myself and I'm struggling most days. So maybe this morning you need a good king, one who will rule you well. And even as American people, um, maybe to have Jesus be the ruler, the one who presides well over our lives. I feel so often ruled by my flesh. And my wrong and misplaced passions, I really long to be ruled by the one and only King, Christ Jesus. I mean, maybe we could just ask him. I mean, this this is church. You could in these very moments, because you're tired of already my yammering on, you could in your own heart say, Jesus, would you rule me in a way that shows that you're a good King in my life? Rule me today. Have your... Rule, Overrule me, God. You know, my prayer for me personally, for my family, and even for Indelible Grace Church, as I spend time with you over the next season, I'm going to pray that Jesus would overrule us, that he would be the one that rules us as a people of God in this particular place in Castor Valley meeting at Creekside School that Christ would preside and rule over us. So this king has white hair, right? In verse 14, the hairs of his head were white. And that's troubling to me because is white hair kind of trending a little bit? Like people get their hair dyed kind of in this. I've seen it a little bit, but I feel like it's, it's on its way out again. Like things trend and all that. But, Jesus here is, is unveiled with white hair. It's hard for me to even think of Christ that way. Again, these are kind of images, you know, getting this picture that John is getting of Jesus. But my mind, Jesus is always 33 years old, dark Palestinian hair. You know, like, it's hard for me to imagine him with this white hair. But, you know, in the imagery of Jesus here, it just means, right? He's wise. We don't value white-haired people in our culture. I mean, I don't, I mean, at least I don't so much. I see someone with white hair, and I'm thinking, there's good dyes for that. I mean, there's stuff you can do, right? Um, I mean, because our culture, we value youth. We value... Um, I mean, am I right? Maybe I'm the only one that thinks that. But in our culture, I think that's... A, how about this? It's a value that we, we care about the youth. Uh, but here Jesus is seen as this white-haired, wise, large, big W wisdom of the ages. Um, and related to wisdom, maybe in my own life, most of the time I think that I know exactly what is right for my life. Like, I'm the wise one for my life. Like, I know what's right for me. And I think in our culture, we're encouraging everyone, hey, you've got to do what's right and wise for yourself. You have to do what's right for you. I'm not saying that that's wrong. But as believers, if if you and I are going to say we are followers of Jesus, this Jesus in Revelation 1, this glorified way of looking at Christ, who's the center of all that we want to be, we have to at some point step aside and say we're small w wisdom. That we don't have the white hair wisdom of Jesus and that we need him to be the wise one to tell us what's right. That we have to look at him as... The white haired, the Gandalf of our life, the white, the true white wizard of our lives. So John is seeing that. And and not only is is it white hair, but it's like white wool, like snow, this pure white. And also in verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. So a flame of fire, his eyes are like that. Uh, I'm kind of starting to warm up to the Jesus that's here. Are you a little bit? Or are you like, you've already preached 20 minutes. Wait, how long? Jeff, are you keeping a time? Well, you should. You should. Um, So when I see Jesus here as eyes with like flames of fire, I'm thinking this is good Halloween stuff. You know, the fire in the eyes, it just feels like Halloween to me. But it's very specific because it's important. Fire refines. Fire refines. Um, Well, it's the first... uh, The second thing you need in a zombie apocalypse, really. It's going to come up in most sermons, the zombie apocalypse. It will, it will. Because the first thing you need in a zombie apocalypse is water. You need to go and find your water source. And then the second thing is you need to be able to make fire somehow because fire, it cooks, it cleanses, it warms you, It, it does everything you need outside of water. It's why in Castaway... Are y'all familiar with that film? Please tell me you guys know something about culture, right? Right. So in Castaway, Tom Hanks spends 30 minutes, at least in the movie, making fire. You know, then he dances around because he made fire, right? That needs to be you. You need to be able to make fire. Super important. All right. So Jesus, his eyes are like, like this fire. When Jesus looks at us, the potential is for him to do all of the things that fire does to warm you. When you see, when Jesus looks at you, he can warm you. He can refine you and me. He can give you light. He can nourish, protect. He can cleanse by his very eyes. You know, and I think when Jesus, his eyes like fire, he's saying, eyes on me. Because when you... When I sit around a, like a fire, um, you know, like a fire pit with other people, I, the fire mesmerizes me. And when I look into the campfire or to a, a fire pit, I begin kind of opening up to people around me because I'm kind of mesmerized by the fire. Jesus wants you to look at him and open up. You know, get mesmerized by him and have some refining moments of opening up and talking. At least that's what it does for me. <laughs> there's this crazy scene, and I'm not—I don't always use movie, stupid movie references. I, I mean, sometimes. I mean, yeah, okay, maybe. But there's a movie with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz called Night and Day. No, it's kind of—it was a little bit. But there's a scene where his character, Tom Cruise, he's like an, a special operative who's like James Bond. Kind of surprising that he put, play a character like that. Like that's what he is in all the movies he plays in. But he tells Cameron Diaz. In this scene, he's like, if you want to survive, you need to look right here. Your chances of survival with me here, without me here. Look at me. With me here, without me here. And he does it a lot of times, like two times too many. He's showing in the scene. Jesus right now is trying to tell you right here. With me, good. Without me, not good. Right? That's what Jesus wants when he has these eyes of fire right here he says right here okay so what do we have left his eyes were like a flame of fire verse 15 his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and we're going to lastly get to his voice not going I'm not going I'm going to skip some things but a lot of commentators wonder why it is that John in this vision sees Jesus's feet. I don't know why that's an interesting, like that he sees everything, including his feet. I guess maybe in the first century, we're not really concerned about people's feet so much because they're walking around on dirty streets and you really don't want to take a look at those because they're dirty. And, you know, that's not the case here, though. Maybe John sees his feet because they are like burnished bronze, I'm not really sure exactly what burnished bronze looks like exactly. I did some Google searching to see that. But but you know this, if you know anything about metals, I'm thinking, why isn't it gold? Why aren't his feet like gold? Because gold is soft. It's a great metal, it's a precious metal, it's the most expensive one. But it's soft. Burnished bronze is stronger. Why is it the third place metal? I mean, Jesus' feet is not the third place medal. It's the strongest. It's burnished bronze, which means that if you need, if you need strength today, and, and I get it. We're a culture and even a church. We want to stand on our own two feet. And I understand that. We're men and women who want to be able to say, I'm standing on my own two feet. And I think... That is good. and I don't think being a Christian means you don't say that. We need to be able to stand on our own two feet. Yes. But I think as believers, we can say, I'm standing on my own two feet on Jesus's two feet. <laughs> you know, I'm standing on, I'm four-footed with Jesus. G- and, and on the days that I can't stand, I got his. And there are so many days for me, this is just me, that I'm holding on to his feet like for dear life i'm holding on so grateful that his feet will never let me down you know you can stand on his feet hug them close and he can dance with you he can hold you and he is strong you're like that's just weird it isn't though you need this week i don't know exactly what you're going to face you don't either you think you know what you're going to face. You don't. You don't know what's going to happen with your kids. You don't know what's going to happen with your roommates or your job or driving down 680. I mean, you, you really don't know. 680 is one of them, right? It is. 580? Okay, I'll get them. 80? Okay. You don't know. So you and I both need the strength of his burnished bronze feet. We do. We just do. Okay. All right, so the last thing, and I'm going to wrap it up and we'll take the Lord's Supper. And wow, the Lord's Supper, being able to have this also kind of unveiling of Jesus. The Lord's Supper is meant to be that, um, kind of this living example that we can take in. But it goes on, Jesus, uh, John's vision, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like that, the roar of many waters. Okay, that's also lost on me quite a bit. Um, Have have any of you this rhetorical? Have any of you ever been by a very loud waterfall or river and tried to talk to somebody next to it? Right? What do you do when you're 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 yelling at them? You're like, hey, just down the, you know, you're just yelling and you're very because it's roaring, right? So that's kind of scary. If Jesus here, he's got the voice that's like the roar of many waters. It's like, oh. Jesus seems kind of scary. He's, yell- he's yelling like I tend to do when I preach. I'm sorry. I do yell a lot. I apologize. But Jesus, he's, he's yeah, he's, because his voice has to drown out so many other voices in my life. Like, some of you are like, Tom, there are people you can see about that. <laughs> I know. But, and I'm not making fun of, or making light of mental illness. I'm saying, in general, there are lots of voices speaking into our lives. We have mostly ourselves. We, we're telling ourselves all kinds of things. We're telling ourselves too often that we're sinful, and that we're guilty and shameful. Sometimes that voice needs to be drowned out by the loving voice of Christ reminding you of the gospel, which is, yes, we're sinful, far, far beyond what we're even willing to admit, but that we're loved more than we're comfortable with also in Christ. That voice might need to ring out. Or some of us, we need to hear the other. Whatever side of that, Jesus' loud, roaring voice needs to be the one that's heard in your life more than any other. Maybe more than the church, because he is the head of the church. He's the voice of the church. Not a pastor, not an elder. Jesus is the voice that the chairs need to turn around to and vote in. You know. So it kind of reminds me of that scene in Elf where he's having an Elf. Everybody? You know? You've not seen it? Okay. So there's a scene where there's an Elf. His name's Will Ferrell. He's the actor. But he, he does a singing telegram to his father. And so, you know, he walks into his father and his father hasn't seen him in years since he was not at all. His father hasn't seen him at all. And he has to do a singing telegram and he he does it. And he's like, I'm singing, I'm singing and I love you to his dad. And it's super awkward. Kind of like what I'm doing now. It's super awkward. This, and it's embarrassing. This is the voice that Christ, he, he, he wants to embarrass you because he loves you so much. He is Elf singing, I love you. You're mine. You're my beloved. I'm here for you. I don't want any other voices. You to, I want you to hear my voice. Yeah, I've told you that Jesus is like Elf. That's what you need to walk away with because he he loves you that much that he's going to do an embarrassing singing telegram over you. But it's biblical. Zephaniah chapter 3, starting around verse 17, it says that God rejoices over his people with loud singing. Roar of many waters. Jesus is right now in this moment here today at IGC. Did I get it right? Indelible Grace Church. He is singing over you. You. Us. Loud singing. You're like, Jesus, it's embarrassing. Yeah. Because he loves you. He loves me. I'm so grateful. Because, I don't, does anybody, do you feel like you deserve loud singing over you? You do, though. You do, that's, Jesus died for us and rose again to be this for John. And so as John sees this Jesus, all these things that we've tried to unpack a little bit, what does John do when he turns and sees this Jesus singing loudly, right? The voice of many waters, the the two-edged sword, all of it. What does he do? He high-fives Jesus, right? No, he falls down as though dead, this is the John the beloved disciple when he sees Jesus he doesn't high five him he falls down as though dead the text says and this is what I came to say so if you went away for like the last 20 ever minutes come back to me for just a second Jesus right now because we don't know how to react when we see Jesus the way he is often we don't know what to do Sometimes we were like, should I high-five him? Should I fall down as though dead? How? Jesus, is, Jesus is right now, through his word and by his spirit and grace, reaching out his hand. Not only is he singing loudly over you, but he's reaching out his hand to you and saying, fear not, I am the living one. Stand up. Fear not. When Jesus Christ says, fear not, and there's a lot of things that we should be afraid of. All the, the history of our church, not just IGC, but of the church. The hist- all the history, all the things in our family life, so many things. When Jesus says to you today, fear not, I am the living one. I'm alive forevermore. I'm the first and the last. You can have such joy. Y- you can rejoice with him. So would you pray with me and we'll come and partake of the Lord's Supper. Hopefully with this Christ in mind in view, hopefully we'll turn to see the voice that will partake of the Lord's Supper as those who are seeing glimpses of him through his word and then can partake. So let's pray. And then I want to say the words of institution for the Lord's Supper. Pray with me now. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful this morning for your love for us, that you are laying your hands upon This body, us today, in these moments, by your spirit and grace. And even as we partake of the supper, this communion together with you, that you are singing over us, that you are strong, that you're the wise one. You want to rule our hearts because you're good. You are the good king. Lord Jesus, help us to hear your voice. We pray it in your name. Amen.